Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilika, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. So this is the situation as it is as we are recording it, 11 million COVID-19 cases diagnosed in the United States, 54, around the, 54 million around the world, about a quarter of a million confirmed deaths. That number is certainly an underestimate in the United States. You see the shape of the curve, regardless whether you want to call those waves or surges or humps. Uh, the bad news is that we are building to a crescendo and, and the, the rate, uh, the, the, the slope of that curve is rising even faster. So those two blue arrows over on the right-hand side, that, that curve is going to go up before it comes back down. But this whole issue of the possibility of, of vaccination to prevent COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, is what would allow us to, to um, use that other arrow that points uh, sharply downward. And the, the sooner we're able to vaccinate, the faster we're able to vaccinate uh, the more we can begin to get this genie back in the bottle and get the get the pandemic back under control. So vaccines are amazing kinds of medications. Other than clean water, there's no other medical intervention that has saved more lives. Not antibiotics, not heart transplants, uh, nothing uh, other than vaccines. Society expects, and the FDA requires, that vaccines be the safest of all medications they are given to healthy people to keep them healthy. They are studied in larger clinical trials than any other drug. And once they're licensed, once they're released, the uh, safety surveillance continues infinitely. Uh, it will never stop and highly important to society in that regard. There are, this, this uh, graphic shows uh, in the right hand, or sorry, the left hand column, five different categories of, of vaccines live attenuated, inactivated subunit. The last two rows are relatively new technologies. Over in the right column, you see analogies to vaccines that you're quite familiar with, measles vaccine, flu mist, the, old, the previous oral polio vaccine uh, for live vaccines, uh, the injectable polio, hepatitis A, rabies for inactivated vaccines, subunit vaccines, Sanofi's brand of influenza vaccine, flu block is a subunit vaccine. But I've, I've circled in red uh, the mRNA vaccines, which are nucleic acids, uh, because they are the ones that are going to come out of the pipeline for COVID-19 the soonest. And we'll spend some extra time talking about those in the next few minutes. That last row is viral vector vaccines, another relatively new technology. That's using one virus to express the, the protein from a second virus. That's how the Ebola vaccines work. Uh, although they're relatively niche products. But let's come back to those uh, mRNA, messenger RNA, nucleic acid vaccines. They are akin to little blueprints 
that go into the cells, into the cytoplasm of the cells, not the nucleus, into the cytoplasm, they direct the production of other proteins. In this case, for SARS-CoV-2, a spike protein, and that causes the production within the body of the active ingredient of, the, of, of a typical vaccine, and then it, it looks... Uh, it, it then induces immunity, and the, and the uh, uh, data you've seen over the last few weeks has uh, shown considerable promise with this technology. They are, they've been, mRNA products have been explored in very small trials for over 10 years, but this is the first time that we're on the verge of seeing them being used in, in, a, in a major way. Uh, this uh, uh, table shows, compares and contrasts uh, two different mRNAs, one from uh, Moderna in the middle column, and one from BioNTech with its partner Pfizer in the right-hand column. I've shown the product designators. They're both mRNAs. mRNAs are nucleosides that, that are then surrounded by little lipids to keep them from, from degrading uh, when, they're, when they're injected into the body until they can get to the right place. And so that's what those nanoparticles mean. They're little sequences of amino acids, little, little proteins, and so they are essentially synthetic. They're not grown in cell production facilities or cultures uh, like some other, most other vaccines are. Intramuscular products, two-dose products, different uh, timing, one, 21 days apart for BioNTech uh, Pfizer's product, 28 days apart for Moderna's. I've got rows there for efficacy and safety, because, and I've left them blank because the news keeps changing, even as we were making these slides. Uh, the efficacy numbers have, have, have changed. But the good news is that they are all well over 90%. These vaccines uh, seem to be highly protective in uh, preventing uh, COVID-19. And th th that's good in several ways. These particular, this particular technology is working. And it also means, my interpretation is that there, there is an Achilles heel to this virus. And it's that spike protein. And so the, the success, the, the apparent success, uh, pending FDA action of these products is showing that, that the vaccine is, or sorry, that the virus is vulnerable and preventable. And that bodes well for the other vaccine technologies, those adenovirus vectors, the subunit vaccines that I mentioned. Safety profile is, is blank there. So far, so good. It, things are, you know, the, the adverse event profiles that we've uh, heard about to date are comparable to that of other vaccines. At this point, a few tens of thousands of people have received the vaccines. It's not millions. And so we keep our eyes and ears open. That's part of that uh, infinite safety surveillance program that I talked about with any vaccine. And we're, we, you know, we're, we're in relatively early days. We should acknowledge that with these products, but uh, so far so good. The side effect profiles look uh, quite reasonable. Now, what about these vaccines as, as drug products, as, as pharmaceuticals? Different doses, both are frozen liquids, so popsicles, think of them. The, the, importantly, the, the BioNTech Pfizer product is a concentrate. Uh, well, that's what that first arrow, the top arrow is pointing to. You know, it, with the implication for that bottom arrow, it needs to be diluted to the, uh, it's not in ready to use form. It needs to be diluted uh, with saline. And so follow the instructions that come if, if, if this is a product that comes your way. They're in multi-dose vials without preservative. That's an unusual situation. 
So because of the potential risk for bacterial contamination, as you enter or pierce the container stopper, uh, the, the containers need to be thrown away at the end of the day, at the end of a shift, so that there's no chance for uh, bacterial infections from the uh, uh, from handling of the product. Storage has been all over the news. Minus 20 degrees centigrade for Moderna. That's about roughly minus. That's roughly zero Fahrenheit. Cold, but not that not so cold. Uh, it's ice cream cold. Minus 70 degrees centigrade for uh, BioNTech. Minus 94 Fahrenheit. Colder than Alaska. And so special effort needed. Dry ice. Uh, special containers, ultra low, uh, ultra special equipment, all very manageable with planning, with labor, with extra watching and checking of alarm systems and all that sort of thing. Moderna uh, just recently announced that they can, uh, their product can stay in the refrigerator for up to th- not more than NMT, not more than thirty days, and um, BioNTech Pfizer five days uh, refrigerated, and then they uh, they need to be. Once they're brought up to room temperature for clinical use, uh, just a few hours each. Phase three trials wrapping up. Uh, the, the data will go to the FDA. Is it, By the time you're seeing this, it will be with the FDA, uh, and then it'll be in FDA's hands to decide uh, the quality of the evidence that the manufacturers have submitted. The ages in, uh, are, you know, there's a mid-adult group and a 65-plus group. In both cases, a few others, but that's where the chunk, that's where the bulk of the uh, volunteers have come from. And so we'll have uh, explicit information in mid adult folks and older adult folks. Uncle Sam has already bought 100 million of each product. So it's bought and paid for thanks to the U.S. taxpayers. And uh, so, so the drug product is, uh, is uh, free. And then there'll be issues with administration fees. This is a diagram that uh, the Wall Street Journal showed. Um, some months ago, uh, and, and just to, as a descriptor, here's a dry ice pod. If you can look closely, you'll see five what are humorously called pizza boxes, uh, which is where the vaccine is in a in a dedicated, uh, specially designed uh, shipping container. And the pizza boxes uh, have about a thousand, uh, almost a thousand doses per tray. And uh, so, uh, you know, this is being taken into account as to wh- to which sites this product will be shipped to. That will be coordination between your state health department, the CDC, obviously your county and your city are going to be feeding up information to the to the state health department. Likely, your institution uh, leadership has already been queried about about these kinds of things. So it could be that this product is is made available to you under what's called emergency use authorization. This is a relatively uh, unknown, uh, until recently, pathway that the FDA uh, has access to it. So when a a developer sends in an application to the FDA, it can literally uh, exceed 100,000 pages worth of information electronically, not, not physical paper, but, but a huge amount of information. Well, the FDA has got to read all that and, and analyze it and, and come to conclusions about it. And it can take several months. And at the rate the pandemic is going, if, if, if a thousand people are dying a day, waiting three months could be a hundred thousand deaths. And so is there a way to get the vaccine available sooner, give access to an unlicensed vaccine where there is just enough information 
uh, for the FDA to decide that, that it's okay to proceed a little bit, uh, somewhat. And that's what EUA authorization is. So it's already been used for a bunch of the diagnostic tests for remdesivir for just within the last few days for Lilly's monoclonal antibody product. And, but it does raise the question, how can there be enough information for the FDA to say, okay, go ahead with this investigational product on a broader scale, but not to also license the vaccine? And it could be that the, the executive summary of the results are positive, but the sponsor still hasn't finished making its what's called its three consistency lots to show that it can be the, the quality of production is consistent. It could be that the results are positive, but the FDA hasn't finished doing all the subgroup analyses and all of its confirmatory double checks. And, and that's the way that an EUA could be, uh, could be a useful pathway to give access to, to a vaccine a little bit earlier. Is it a sub-quality approval or a substandard, low-quality low substandard approval? No, as long as there's objective evidence. In, in previous weeks and months, we were worried about political influence on, on uh, the scientific agencies that's diminished in, in recently. But as long as, you know, the, the FDA would only take an, F, an EUA action if there was evidence to support it. So... The vaccine is released by the FDA under an emergency use authorization. What does it mean to you at the clinical level, at the clinic level, the, the pharmacy level, the, the uh, practice site level? Well, healthcare providers, pharmacists as one, and patients, which could be the pharmacists as well, coincidentally, need to be informed of various things, known the potential benefits, the known and the potential risks, what's not known, uh, what your alternatives are. Uh, and then uh, EUA products cannot be mandatory. There is an op opportunity to, to accept or decline. And this is all would all be uh, summarized in fact sheets. Perhaps you have had a chance to, to see some fact sheets for other EUA products. The, th these are investigational products, but they do not need to go to an institutional review board, a committee for medical research ethics. There's no obligation to collect signatures. And HHS can set the conditions for distribution. So you saw this with that monoclonal antibody that it could be used on certain outpatient settings, certain kinds of patients, but not in inpatient settings. And, and so how this would all play out for a vaccine, pretty unprecedented and uh, remains to be seen fully. What about liability and injury compensation? So people, uh, clinicians such as yourselves, administering COVID-19 vaccines and other COVID-19 countermeasures, both devices and drugs and vaccines, therapeutics and vaccines, are indemnified under the PrEP Act. And you can follow the details at the website that I've provided there. The PrEP Act also authorizes what is called the, med uh, excuse me, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. This is analogous to the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program that provides recourse for uh, for most routinely used vaccines. But this CICP can provide benefits in case anyone is physically harmed uh, as a result of COVID-19 vaccination. So the first one is uh, liability and the second one is injury compensation. So th this slide is a, uh, a reminder not, that you're not alone. I do work with the good folks at the Immunization Action Coalition at immunize.org. We have Lots of practice uh, tools, 
various uh, documents in a wide variety of languages. Uh, we have a, a weekly uh, newsletter that uh, uh, IAC Express that, that Eric mentioned. We've, we've just established mass-vaccination-resources.org, which is uh, resources for mass vaccination clinics that might be helpful to you. There's a, uh, an archived webinar there. I'm sure SHP itself is developing a, a suite of, of, uh, of aids to help to help its members. And so you're not in it alone. Make sure that you're tapping all the resources that are available to you. This is uh, an article I wrote quite a few years ago setting out standards for mass immunization programs. And the, the, the most important thing is that little text written at an angle. It's the same as any vaccine. There, this is a, you know, mRNA is a little new. So, you know, read up on its mechanism of action. Uh, learn the intricacies of the storage for these products. It's a little more complicated. It's going to take you a little more time. But, but what's the same? It, training, in, informing the, the potential recipients, paying attention to the storage and handling. Asking for histories, uh, in this case, histories maybe of, of comorbidities and, and age and that sort of thing. Checking for contraindications, giving a good uh, intramuscular uh, vaccination at the right anatomic spot so you don't have shoulder injury. Uh, documentation, crucial that people who got brand A for dose one come back and get brand A for dose two. And then monitoring for adverse event, contributing to the uh, very intricate safety surveillance systems that the um, uh, CDC has has set up and uh, that you'll be participating in. Uh, that's It's incumbent on everybody in public health and in clinical care to have their eyes and ears wide open that they're uh, doing a good job. So uh, this is the, the uh, reminder about the weekly newsletter from, uh, from Immunization Action Coalition. We keep tabs of uh, what the CDC and and FDA and, and all sorts and World Health Organization, a variety of partners are, are doing and uh, certainly want to make those uh, resources available to you. It's all free. Eric, thanks very much. Thank you, John. This certainly gives us a lot to think about. Before we move on, I want to take a moment to consider the primary SARS-CoV-2 vaccine candidates under development. Two questions to, to pose for self-reflection are, are you and your health system prepared to meet the storage and handling requirements for the vaccines? Also, have you thought about how the health system workforce and potential patients will be informed about the risks, benefits, and other requirements for vaccines made available through emergency use authorization? To learn about how one health system has addressed these challenges, I'll now turn the program over to Mark. Thank you, Eric. This part of the presentation is going to be about one system's thought process as we made our preparations to onboard the COVID-19 vaccine. So just to level set and compare, uh, we are a seven hospital, 1600 bed uh, organization in Middle Tennessee. Uh, we have a large children's hospital affiliated, a large clinic operation with over 200 sites. One thing I want to highlight on this is that we have a 70,000 square foot off-site pharmacy facility that we do distribution from, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the presentation. We have an epic omnicell infrastructure for our health IT, and our health IT colleagues play an important part 
in, in this planning process for us. So just to build on past experience, uh, we do a mass vaccination event every year as part of our annual flu uh, efforts to, to vaccinate our faculty, staff, and students here on campus. In 2011, we uh, received the Guinness Book of World Records Award. We vaccinated 12,850 folks in eight hours, and, and our annual event now has a name called Flu La Palooza. Uh, we were disappointed that we weren't able to hold it this year, but uh, again, we have a number of years experience with, with this type of event. Uh, we're also a little bit unique, I think, in healthcare systems in that we provided distribution for remdesivir during, during the early part of the pandemic back in the spring and early summer on behalf of our Tennessee Department of Health and our Tennessee Hospital Association to the hospitals in the state of Tennessee. We managed uh, 1,400 uh, requests for over 60 hospitals and had an average time to receive of just a little under eight hours. So as we were looking at this process, we really focused on the need for our ability to socially distance a mass vaccination event. And, and we're modeling uh, groups of 1,000 for our modeling for these events. So our process management process, I guess I'll say, we leveraged our emergency management uh, structure here at Vanderbilt. Uh, we have a leader for that, a former trans trauma surgeon, uh, John Morris, and then our um, quality safety and risk prevention leader, Chad Fitzgerald, co-lead that. And they pull in the resources that are needed to uh, make sure we have the appropriate infrastructure in place to deliver a vaccine across our enterprise. Um, we have a team that monitors the regulations and, and the media uh, updates as well as the literature as, as it comes out on these vaccines. And, and I'm very honored to be able to work with folks like Dr. Bill Schaffner, Dr. Kep Talbot, Dr. Catherine Edwards, and a number of other infectious disease experts who are forming our committee to assess the vaccine data and the vaccine efficacy and safety and, and provide guidance for our organization as we bring those vaccines on board. Um, our volume projections are based off of our flu experience from the previous season. Here at Vanderbilt, we processed about 120,000 patients through the system last year for flu, and we're doubling that for our COVID vaccine projections since um, the current vaccines are a two-dose regimen. And then we're leveraging our mass vaccination expertise to make sure we can safely and uh, efficiently move patients through uh, a mass vaccination event, again, with, with numbers of 1,000 uh, patients per day in a socially distanced environment. Our facilities management resources are critical to our success here because we ask them to provide uh, network and, and power availability in, in places like warehouses where we hold these mass uh, vaccination drive-through events. And our event staffing team uh, does a wonderful job making sure that we have appropriate resources for patient check-in, patient monitoring if there's an issue, and any other supply uh, resources that we need. So here's our project management team. Um, we do have a system executive steering committee supported by a system operations committee and our vaccine advisory committee that I mentioned. And then our compliance and communication teams uh, do a wonderful job of thinking about how we do this uh, in association with the current executive orders that are approved by the governor in the state of Tennessee, and then thinking about how we communicate this to our staff, to our faculty, and to our patient populations as we look at bringing these vaccines on board. 
obviously we're uh, just finishing up an election year and there's been a, a significant amount of information on this in, in social media and um, trying to make sure that the communication that we're sending out is, is evidence-based and appropriate for the population we're distributing that communication to is important because this is a public health marketing campaign to stem the pandemic in our area. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our health IT team is critical to the file bill, to making sure that the appropriate alerting is in place, to making sure that the appropriate patient data collection on comorbidities and, and other things that we need to be thinking about as we give these vaccines is all embedded into the electronic health record and that we can then take the, the administration information from that and port it into the state reporting uh, portal for vaccine administration. I mentioned earlier our facilities group is critical to this, but also security as we are going to need to manage crowd control and make sure we maintain social distancing. We have a team that looks at site design and throughput through the, the sites that we will be giving these vaccines to in our mass vaccination events to make sure, again, that uh, there's not any hiccups in that process. And our supply chain team has done a wonderful job of making sure that we have appropriate PPE and syringes and needles and, and antiseptic wipes and all the other things that go with a large uh, vaccine event. And then the pharmacy team, I can't say enough about how proud I am of our clinic and uh, hospital-based and procurement team uh, for coming together and providing a wonderful logistics process to make sure that we can distribute vaccine effectively and safety, as well as maintain cold storage. Undergirding this all is, is our key folks in, in finance and in budgeting, pulling our research team in, as I mentioned before, to make sure we're leveraging their experience from the studies here. Uh, our marketing and real estate teams, making sure we have site identification and, again, a, a, an external communication plan and an internal communication plan, and then making sure our manpower is appropriate as we support these sites in multiple locations. So all in all, a very large and, and somewhat complex organization that's undergirded by great collaboration and communication. So... Going back to the September, when we start, first started learning about the vaccine, uh, the CDC released uh, this document that I think everyone's familiar with, uh, the playbook for COVID vaccination and scenarios for jurisdictional planning. And so the first decision point for us was, do we purchase or not purchase freezer capacity to store the vaccines? We looked at our organization and we had one minus 70 freezer in the pharmacy organization. Uh, being used for research. And there was another one uh, in our research enterprise that was actually being used for vaccine research that had a little bit of storage capacity, but no other storage capacity. And, and not knowing how the logistics were going to work uh, for the Pfizer product, not knowing a lot of things at the time, but knowing that we wanted to be prepared and be able to store the product that we received, um, we were able to make a corporate decision to purchase four minus 70 freezers and four minus 20 freezers. And uh, those went into place today uh, on November 18th when we're taping this. So we are ready to receive our vaccine. In terms of anticipating storage needs, we reviewed the status of the current U.S. research initiatives to project when we thought availability would happen. Uh, we've leveraged information from a number of sources. Uh, as I mentioned before, our physician group 
is plugged in with ACIP. Uh, we have pharmacy teams plugged in with ASHP, obviously. We have a wonderful relationship with our State Department of Health, who's done a great job of keeping us apprised of their process and status. And then our group purchasing organization, we're a member of Vizian, and we participate on their calls to stay abreast of all the current information, as well as other professional society websites, just to be able to uh, stay abreast of uh, not only the Moderna and the Pfizer product, but the J&J and uh, other products, AstraZeneca, that are projected to be available hopefully in the spring. We also looked at our catchment area, so to speak, our patient populations and who would who would be first in line uh, for the vaccine and started to make projections and plans for how to bring those those uh, folks into the organization for vaccination. And then based off that, we um, started making projections based off when and how we thought we would get our, our allocations to be able to deliver product. So, again, I think everyone is very familiar with if you've been shopping for a minus 70 freezer, but there is a significant space requirement for these. We did have uh, to work with our facilities management team to get additional power to support these in the four sites they were deployed in, as well as data for our data logging technology. And we expedited that through our health IT teams uh, who support that for us. So this was no small task over the last few weeks to, to get these vaccine, uh, these freezers ordered, get them here, get them on site and in place. But we are happy to say that in mid-November, we are ready for vaccine receipt. So, again, I just want to highlight, as we went through the process, um, we got um, a survey request from the state. You know, what kind of refrigerator and freezer capacity do you have? What standards do you use for your refrigerators and freezers that you store medications in, in your hospitals and clinics? And the CDC guidelines uh, played a big role in that for us as we, we did a assessment of our uh, refrigerator and freezer capacity in our clinics and saw that this was an opportunity for us that we needed to probably consider putting some centralized oversight and management of this resource in our organization in place Obviously, variability in your units can negatively impact your ability to deploy vaccine, and variability in the data logging uh, can can also negatively uh, impact your vaccine deployment. And so we relied heavily on the, the CDC guidance as we stood up our process here and, and made our assessments. So we made the decision. We purchased four each of the minus 70 and minus 20, and, and then we went through a process with our steering committee where we needed to confirm how we wanted to deploy the vaccine in a situation where we didn't really know how the state was going to allocate vaccine. We did a quick review of the available products to us and, and uh, made a product selection and, and then confirmed availability with the vendor. And then in, in early October, we um, made our order and confirmed a ship date. So we, we felt like this would put us in a position to best support our organization and potentially support other organizations in the area as the, the vaccine came online. Our dispensing strategy uh, internally, uh, we were using an escalating infrastructure to do this. Obviously, our frontline employees on our three COVID units and our emergency department uh, were going to be early in the process based off vaccine availability. And then we were going to strategize over the course of the vaccine allocation 
um, our walk-in areas and our, our large clinic uh, locations in 100 Oaks, uh, which is what OHO stands for, our Vanderbilt Clinic, uh, the Vanderbilt Clinic, which is what the TVC stands for, and then high volume where we would start, uh, again, holding our mass vaccination or sites to uh, use the allocations once it became fully available. One interesting thing as we looked at this, uh, this next slide, talking about the occupational groups and, and the, the strategies for bringing high-risk patients into uh, the mix, our occupational health team um, brought up the fact that we really can't mine our staff information in the electronic health record because that's HIPAA-protected information. And so thinking about how to collect that information, uh, our current thought is to use a survey tool uh, with staff where they would voluntarily provide that information in a state where, where it would be appropriate for us to be able to then use that information to schedule uh, staff for vaccination and then obviously chart in the electronic health record. That was a, a hurdle we had to jump over early in our planning process. And I think we have a good survey tool in place to, to be able to get that information collected so we can stratify high-risk populations within our staff. But then uh, the next slide talks a little bit more about kind of our scope of established patients as we think about this and think about the, the comorbidities, our patients who are over 65 and who have diabetes, who are obese. Uh, we in Tennessee have a large obese population, and so this will play a role in our rollout, I expect. Uh, patients who have hypertension and who are immunocompromised, and then being able to go through an algorithm uh, of our patients in state and out of state. Uh, obviously, the in-state patients will be part of our focus in, in the metro service area and patients who are in our county of Davidson and who are outside our county of Davidson. So we've got a good stratification of our patients, but then we started thinking about a communication plan and the resources we needed to support the logistics. And so going back to our remdesivir experience, as we think about logistics, you know, how many locations are we going to support? That's going to be driven by what the state will, will send us. And then uh, we've got a plan to thaw based off scheduled patients to mitigate expired drug. And so we will be um, thawing and, and delivering product to, to clinic locations is our plan as long as we can get support from the state for this, and then schedule patients for the initial and booster dose and, and hold back the, the um, quantity of doses to support the second dose. The supply availability has been an interesting process for us as the federal government has, has secured a lot of supply out of the supply chain to support the COVID vaccine process. That's created shortages for those of us who are still acquiring drugs or supplies out of the supply chain, syringes and needles and that type thing. And so uh, we're just making sure the supplies are adequate will be a key part of our rollout here. And then being able to bill for administration and then having manpower, as I mentioned earlier, to register, assess, educate, administer, and, and monitor. And so we're continuing to look at our workforce and who can come into the workforce to help do this. We are so blessed in Nashville. Uh, we have three colleges of pharmacy in the city, and we have leaned on uh, those colleges of pharmacy and those student interns to come in and help support mass vaccination events in the past. And we've already built uh, the local deans into our planning process to be able to leverage 
those students in our vaccination process. So uh, a huge opportunity for uh, multi-layered learning as you roll out a COVID vaccine in a metro area. More operational considerations uh, and just dealing with perceptions, and I think other speakers in this session have talked about this, but we wanted to get a, a flavor for what staff and patients in our organization felt about the vaccine. What, what's their state of readiness? And so uh, we did a survey of about 4,000 of our staff and, and patients. Um, had a pretty good willingness to get the COVID vaccine, of uh, 74% overall, 81% for patients who are age 65 or older. The main concern that we got in the feedback with the, was that the vaccine's been rushed. Patients are willing to get the vaccine at a drive-up. So effective communications, we think, will be critical to engage the public in this vaccine initiative. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about communications and general awareness at this state where we're at today, reassuring patients and staff that we are focused on workforce safety and we want to be transparent in our communications and just continuing to leverage our experts to focus on the safety, the information that was derived from the research done here and at other locations. And then talking about the historical value of vaccination that John mentioned earlier. And then phase two, more logistical in nature uh, with broad communications and segmented communications uh, tailored to groups, uh, obviously engaging our frontline healthcare workers and making sure that they are comfortable and knowledgeable about the development of the vaccine, we think will be important as we make preparations to roll this out. So again, in our key messaging for phase one pre-vaccine, making sure people understand that uh, this is a transparent process. The vaccine is uh, safe given the data from the research studies that have been done. We have played a role in research here locally, and so leveraging that in our communications as well and acknowledging the unknowns uh, with the other vaccines that uh, still have data to share uh, from the studies that are being done and then making sure our leadership and our experts are involved in that process. And then phase two, once the vaccine is here and we're, we're getting ready to roll it out, we know any internal uh, communication will be externally available in the community. And so we just want to make sure that we're clear and concise and focused in our communications. Again, keeping a, a concentration on safety and well-being of our staff and patients, making sure our staff understand that this is an investment in workforce safety and making sure our experts are the face of this communication because they are so well-received in the community. Again, external communications are important to keep in mind, knowing that anything that you communicate internally will be externally communicated, uh, but making sure we continue to focus on the data, make sure we continue to focus on the research, and make sure we continue to focus on the role of vaccines in public health to try to turn the tide of our public toward being uh, supportive of vaccination and being willing and, and being willing to encourage others face-to-face -face and on social media to do what we need to do to stem this pandemic. So key takeaways, uh, obviously we're all planning for deployment of the vaccines as we continue to learn about specifics. I think it's critical that hospital pharmacies and pharmacy leaders play a role in management of, of introduction of these vaccines in your organization. And then intentional communication, I think, is important in this process. And uh, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't stop and thank uh, the team at ASHP, Eric, Carla, 
uh, Anna and others who helped support this. And then uh, just to stop and recognize uh, John and Eric's uh, service to our country and the military at this time. Thank you, gentlemen. Eric, back to you. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.